I would never call myself a pianist, but I do like to tinker on the ivories every now and then, especially this time of year. As there are these Christmas classics that always stir up this warm, cozy feeling inside. And so trying to play some semblance of these songs on the piano is a nice therapy for me. You know, the unexpected chord changes, the sentimental lyrics, the catchy melodies. Ah, tis the season. One tune in particular is the song, I'll Be Home for Christmas. Now, that's become more and more relevant for me over the years as my own Christmas tradition has been flying home on Christmas Day to see my family. And so, yes, please have snow and mistletoe and presents by the tree, please. What a lovely thought. Another one is the Christmas song, or more often known by its opening line, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Now talk about warming your heart. The images in this song really do make the season bright. You have Jack Frost nipping at your nose, yuletide carols being sung by a choir, and then those tiny tots with their eyes all aglow. Yes, Merry Christmas to you, right? We cannot help but for our imaginations to be captivated by these kinds of visions of Christmas. What is it for you? Opening gifts around a tree, sipping eggnog with some of your friends perhaps, or maybe your grandchildren running around in their PJs. Whatever it is, all of us are drawn to these comfy conceptions of Christmas. And so it's inevitable, isn't it? It's inevitable that we will then read these warm fuzzies into the Christmas story itself. To sentimentalize the manger scene. To treat the angels in the sky as cute little characters in a Christmas pageant. As if your own child is all dressed up with a homemade halo and those cardboard cutouts for wings. Standing there on the stage and you, you're so proud as the parent taking photos with your cell phone to mark the occasion. This is exactly why we should sit up and pay attention with fresh eyes to see how the original Christmas story is actually told. To see what is at its core, right? Because the greatest temptation of Christmas is to miss how disruptive it really is. Because for Luke, the Christmas story is... Anything but cute and cuddly. No, it is rather the culmination of a power struggle, the rumblings of which go back to the very beginnings of time, bringing us to this night when what is poised to break out is nothing short of a revolution. The seed of an insurrection is planted this very night and it is ready. To sprout. So you have these uh, three times in these opening chapters where Luke places the story of Jesus' arrival in the context of the political powers that be. I mean, we heard one of these descriptions just a moment ago. The emperor of the world, Augustus, 
and his governor of this particular area, Quirinius. I mean, we, we just tend to glance over these Roman rulers in a rush to arrive at the manger scene. But to do so is to miss the key question of Christmas, which is simply this. Who's in charge here? Who is the true king of Israel? Who is the true king of the world? Mama, this is a dangerous question. A politically charged question. It's a revolutionary question. And it is the question that is left screaming for an answer as the Old Testament comes to a close. Where is our promised king? You see, throughout the Old Testament, God made Israel some pretty astounding promises. All of which are connected to the promise of a king. A king in the line of David who will rule on God's behalf over all the nations, indeed, over the entire world. So if you are a ruler, if you are a king, Psalm 2, for example, says, you better watch out. Be warned, for the God of Israel intends to set his king on his holy hill, the Mount of Zion, and to make all the nations his heritage. That's what Psalm 2 says. And oh, Israel loved to sing that psalm. They long for that day, how they long for God to set his king, his Messiah, on that holy hill. So much so that whenever Israel installed a new king, I mean, they would naturally place their highest of hopes on that one person. I mean, just like we do all the time with those political leaders that inspire us. We turn them into many messiahs so quickly, don't we? That's actually what's going on in that famous passage from Isaiah 9 that we always read this time of year. This passage is a a royal hymn, kind of like Psalm 2. In fact, scholars believe it to be a, a sort of coronation hymn, probably used when the young Hezekiah was installed as Israel's new king. Because remember that at that time in history, Israel was truly a people who walked in darkness. I mean, they were suffering under the brutality of the world's superpower of the day, the Assyrians, waiting as they always seem to be, waiting on God's deliverance, on the, promise, on the promises of God to be fulfilled through what? A mighty king. But now, the hymn from Isaiah says, they have seen a great light. They finally have their king, one who will break the yoke of their burden and the rod of their oppressor. For unto us a child is born, the text says, a king from the line of David, and he will reign forever and ever. Oh, how they longed for their promised king. Of course, the story of the Old Testament is the story of this hope fading and fading and fading from view. Time and time again. Israel's advent tarries on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, waiting for this promised king of kings, this one from the line of David who would rule over the entire world. Which is why Luke tells the Christmas story the way he does, so that we might not forget that this is the night it happens. Your advent is over. 
Your king is finally here. The revolution can now begin. Augustus, Quirinius, Herod, you've been warned. You've been warned. This is how Luke tells the story. Listen to this. Listen to what the angel Gabriel says earlier to Mary. You will bear a son, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Well, listen, then how Mary replies. She says, God has surely brought down the powerful from their what? Thrones. For he has helped his servant Israel according to the promise he made to our ancestors. <laughs> well, and, and then listen to what Mary's relative, Zechariah, proclaims as he too is ushered into this divine moment. He shouts aloud, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has raised up a mighty Savior in the house of his servant, David. Well, speaking of, did you catch this? That three times in our passage this evening from Luke chapter 2, the name David comes up. Twice in verse 4, and then in verse 11, from the mouth of the angel of the Lord to the shepherds. To you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is the Messiah, which of course means Israel's anointed king, right? You see this? Everybody, everybody paying attention? Right? Christmas is all about kingship. It's about the dawn of a new political order. It's about who's in charge. To whom do we give our loyalty? World leaders, wake up. There's a new king in town, and he will reign on earth forever and ever. Right? Yeah, Father Wes. But don't we already know this? I mean, don't we talk and sing about this all the time? Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Exactly, right, yeah. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Of course, we all know this to be true. But here's the thing. Have our retellings of the Christmas story passed over its main point? <laughs> Have our stock images of the, of the nativity and our worn-over song lyrics dulled the radical edge of what this night truly means for how we're to order our very lives? Have we domesticated Christmas? As many of you know, my wife Abby and our three children are in Texas right now, which means we chose to have our family Christmas the day before they left, opening our presents together just a few days ago. And one of the gifts we gave to our oldest son, Lawson, was this large, full-colored, beautiful, hardcover children's book called Stories of the Saints. I mean, come on, I'm a priest, all right? Well, the next day, Lawson comes up to me and he says, Dad, I really like that book you gave me about the saints, except one thing. I said, well, what's that? Well, it's just that there's a lot of sad stories in there. Ah, I said, because uh, so many saints were, were killed for following Jesus, right? And he nods his head. Well, this exchange led us to talk about the kingship of Jesus, and how throughout history people in power felt threatened by the central claim of our faith, Jesus is Lord. 
not you. Jesus is Lord. And Lord not only, not just over the spiritual realm, Lord not just over my, my own spiritual life. No, he is Lord over both heaven and earth. Jesus is the one who brings God's kingdom to earth and then invites his followers to live under this new rule in this new society called the church. And his saints truly understand what this therefore entails for their lives. They truly understand how revolutionary this is. In fact, if you were to keep reading Luke's gospel account, you'll come across this uh, interaction Jesus has with the Pharisees. This occasion when they warn Jesus to leave the area because King Herod is looking to kill him. Interesting. Why would Herod perceive Jesus to be a threat? It certainly isn't because Herod cares about Jesus transgressing those food or Sabbath laws, no. It's not because Jesus tells people that they should love God and love their neighbor. Nor is it because Jesus is this great healer of the sick. None of this would even be enough to wake Herod up from a nap. No. Herod saw Jesus as a threat because his ministry was a sign of the inbreaking reign of God. Whether Herod believed this to be true is beside the point. Because what he feared, what he feared was a population that did believe it. A population that believed that God was on the verge of breaking in. What he feared was a group of followers giving their loyalty to Jesus as king instead of to the state. This is why Herod's father, also known as Herod the Great, when news of the Christmas story reached his desk, This is why he orders a mass execution of toddler and baby boys throughout the land. A gruesome event known as the slaughter of the innocents. Something that we as Anglicans actually observe on December 28th. That's the fourth day of Christmas. Can you believe that? That doesn't seem right, does it? I mean, we're still playing with our Christmas toys on that day. We're eating leftovers with family who are in town. The melodies of the Christmas song are still playing in the background. And we are told to give our attention to the massacre of innocent children? Why, yes. Have we not forgotten? That's what Christmas is about, right? It's about kingship. It's about a political revolution that is afoot. It's about communities who are so loyal to Jesus that those in power view them as a threat. Not because we represent some influential voting block that will allow us to push our own agenda on an unsuspecting nation. How, how shallow and misguided is that? Rather, it's because we, as a community submitted to the lordship of Christ, we are ourselves a political entity. We are a foretaste of a new order, God's kingdom come. We are a window into a new reality that is here and that will one day fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let me put it this way. We are the reason for the season. That is, the reason Jesus was born in the first place. As it says in the book of Revelation, Jesus came and died. Why? To ransom for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
and to make them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they, with Christ, will reign on earth forever and ever. That's the reason Jesus is born this night. A night when we look into the manger, and yes, we do see a cute and cuddly baby with our eyes all aglow, but please, 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 do not let that fool you. Don't be fooled by the sentimental Christmas songs. Don't be fooled by the hot apple cider and the folks dressed up like Eskimos. Because for unto us a child is born and to this one is given authority to establish a kingdom on earth of justice and peace. And we are its citizens. And it's a kingdom to which we with our whole lives, our whole being are meant to bear witness to, to put on display, to enact now. Oh my, yes, Tis a dangerous night tonight. And our next step, if we are to take it, is a very subversive one. For our king is here, and he invites you, and he invites me to join the revolution. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would forgive us for sentimentalizing Christmas, for dulling its edge, for turning it into a bedtime story and not seeing for what it really is. That tonight is the night when your world begins to be remade, where the power structures change and those who are mighty are cast down from their thrones and the rich are sent away empty. Hallelujah. Thank you that you sent your son to, to form a distinct new order, a new community that would be a foretaste of your new world that is here and is coming. We want to live out that reality. And so help us to do that. Be generous with your spirit that we here at All Saints in Jackson, Tennessee might submit to his lordship and that be evident in our communal life together. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.